0: Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. the first part of this podcast, you'll hear me put my foot in it slightly. You see, before entering Parliament, Ruth worked in public affairs. She had worked for Hope Not Hate, and now she heads up Index on censorship. With that CV, I had assumed that we'd have a similar cultural background or outlook. But nope, that's not quite the case. Ruth makes it very clear that she is not a guardian Easter like me. Lessons were learned. Don't judge a book by its cover. Despite my silly questions about Mrs. Brown's boys and whatnot, Ruth is warm and candid and great to chat to. Together, we discuss voters in the Red Wall and how Labour might win them back. We discuss free speech and how we can regulate speech on the internet without undermining fundamental freedoms. We also touch on anti-Semitism within the Labour It remains fashionable to see Jeremy Corbyn as a uniquely honourable figure, someone who was probably just a bit too decent for the upper echelons of British politics. But chatting to Ruth, I think these attitudes will change over the coming years and decades. Over time, the stories of MPs like Ruth, like Louise Ellman, like Luciana Berger, and those who saw his leadership up close, will be heard. Some of the stories Ruth talks about will shock you, but these stories need to be heard. So here is Ruth Anderson. My guest today is Ruth Anderson, also known as Baroness Anderson of Stoke-on-Trent. Ruth was the Labour MP for Stoke-on-Trent-North from 2015 until she lost her seat in the 2019 general election. Ruth now sits in the House of Lords with Labour, and in June 2020, she was appointed as the Chief Executive of Index on Censorship, an organisation which campaigns for the freedom of speech. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. How are you doing this morning?
1: It's morning, I've only had one cup of tea, so
0: let's hope this goes well. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to open this podcast, let all the listeners know that we're recording this at nine o'clock in the morning. I'm absolutely not a morning person. I try and avoid putting any uh, Zoom calls on at work at first thing, and I think my colleagues know, yeah, Leo is not good at first thing in the morning, but I've (laughs) got my coffee next to me. Hopefully it goes smoothly and you've just had a big house move, so you're probably a little bit drained, but we'll we'll do our best. Yeah. I guess my first question, and I had to kind of go in, go in hard, go in early, is, Ruth, you were 35 years old, I believe, when you first became an MP. That's pretty young. Do you ever look back and think, hmm, If only I had run for a seat another time. If only I had run for a seat in 2024, for example, and come in as Labour were likely to form a government. Do you look back at your time in, in office with and how tumultuous it was and think, maybe if I just held off and didn't become an mp so young
1: i am a true believer that you are put where you need to be to have the fights that need to be had and um at the time it didn't feel like i was a very young mp although in hindsight and especially now i'm in the house of lords i'm a very young member of the house (laughs) of lords um it was just a, a thing and i i stood for parliament in 2010 so i was 20 um I was 27 when I got selected to run Parliament for the first time I've never walked away from a fight I think anything has demonstrated over the last few years I'm never going to um but it was um I think I was in the right place at the right time to fight a fight that needed to be fought um so There are easier ways to make a living. There are easier ways to do things. And I'm sure for those people that weren't involved, so directly involved in what I would now consider to be a battle for the future of the Labour Party, for the heart and soul of the Labour Party, about whether we have any right to exist or not. I think all of us have come out battle-hardened, but also a little war weary and tired. Um, But it was really important that those of us that were there were there.
0: There was quite a few battles that the, the Labour Party needed to have. I think the defeat in 2015 was so shattering. And the reaction to that, Labour always had something within it as a political party, which it could do that, it could self-destruct. And then it needed people to haul it back. But during 2015, because the, the issues in the party and our electoral difficulties ran so deep did you see issues arising in 2015 when he first ran for parliament i know that labour's vote in stoke north went down in 2015 there was a surge in ukip as well how was that on the doorstep did you have a sense going into that election well this isn't going as smoothly as i expected something's up people are not happy with the Labour Party here, people are not happy with Ed Miliband or did it only hit you after the results?
1: I um I'm a I don't understand people, uh, politicians that run for office who don't like people, and there are some. <laughs> so um I love locking, I love people, I you know, campaigning was a really important thing for me. Um I was also taking over from a member from someone who'd been a member of parliament for 20 uh, for over 20 years. So um she would have had an inbuilt sort of personal vote. So I went campaigning, campaigned every day, added the last. Um, I loved speaking to people. And I had I've been campaigning in for quite a long time because of the history of the BMP. So the idea that there was from a populist politics, a um something on the ground that wasn't quite right, that was clear. Um, and I thought that being a member of Parliament spoke on trade north be my last ever job. Um, But it was also going to have to be, because although I um, I was relatively young, it was going to take me 30 years to fix, to find the resource, to get the political will invested in the city, to find the money to make some of the structural institutional issues right. So I knew why they were angry. I knew why people were really challenged. And what had happened in my city it's not unique, but one of our it does explain a great deal about our red wall. It's a former industrial heartland, and it is a former industrial heartland. We call ourselves the Potteries. I had more um, ceramics jobs than anywhere else in the country, and yet I only had seven thousand compared, and and it's fewer now because we've lost ever uh, we've lost a couple of big employers. So it it's a huge part of our identity, but it has moved on. Um, and people were doing jobs that didn't pay as well. They didn't have the same level of hope or aspiration for their children. And I need to do everything I could possibly do to challenge that. That was what I wanted to do. Best laid plans, though, right? Because I didn't know that Jeremy Corbyn was about to become leader of the Labour Party, that the Brexit referendum was going to happen, and um, we were going to have three general elections from 2015 to 2019. So all my best laid plans, everything that I had wanted to do, all went out the window really quickly because I was on a perpetual
0: campaign electoral cycle. There almost seemed to be the amount of kind of noise in the Labour Party which just seemed to take any long-term strategy that any individual had, any politician had, just kind of away because it was constantly firefighting. You know, one one of my frustrations with the idea of mandatory reselection that MPs would every every election they would have to get reselected or go through the selection battle again with their members is that is so time consuming. Yeah. That is, and not only does it put um, so much pressure on MPs to bend to the whims of a really unrepresentative group, their local members, but also just the sheer amount of time and campaigning. So, like in where I was living in Lewisham, we'd put so much work in saving our local MPs from reselection. And they would put so much work in fighting these elections within an election, which meant they would have to go away from their duties in parliament, go away from their duties in the community. It must have been frustrating. And I guess, (laughs) how, how quickly did you realize, oh dear, this isn't what I had in mind. I'm thinking probably it was summer 2015. How did you come to terms with Jeremy Corbyn being elected as leader? And then um, did you have any idea things would get as crazy as they did?
1: I had no idea things were going to get as crazy as they did. So um, I was part, I was very squarely team event and was campaigning for team event and there was one thing that I think, all especially the new MPs that were elected in 2015, we were waiting for the grown ups to come into the room and didn't realise we were now the grown ups. Like in the fact, we've just become MPs. We have this <laughs> arrived in Parliament. Harriet Harman is the interim was the interim leader because Ed is gone, and Harriet did this amazing speech to the new MPs, which is you are not apprentice MPs. In your community, you are the member of Parliament. You haven't got time to, and um, this is a very steep learning curve, but you have to do it really quickly because to everyone else, you are now a member of parliament. And then suddenly, like, okay, well, being a member of parliament has lots of different connotations and lots of different responsibilities, and there isn't a job description, and there's no staff, and there's no constituency office, and you don't get a parliamentary office for weeks. And then suddenly, there is a leadership election there are votes on the welfare bill which is what led to the first spark I'm not even sure at the point of us voting for a reasons amendment, I knew what a reasons amendment was, like mm-hmm. I just arrived in Parliament, and you know, legislation and that's the bit I find really, now I'm in the Lords I'm not sure I was a legislator in the House of Commons, but I'm definitely a legislator in the House of Lords, it's a really I was a politician and who had to turn up in Parliament like it was a really weird period of our history, mm. and I wasn't sort of ready. I suppose um, it became very clear that Corbyn was going to win throughout the summer. I was still very proud that I backed her because she put up a fight. She, I think, she was she put up a real fight um, when others chose not to. And I knew it was going to be bad. I don't think I knew. I thought it was going to be politically bad. I didn't think it was going to be personally bad. Um what was, in hindsight, it was a, an incredible thing my mother did, but in hind- but at the time I was like, I'm not sure that you need to do this. Um, the weekend after Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, she put her house on the market and moved to Stoke-on-Trent. But she thought I was in for a rough ride. She thought I was in for a rough ride in a yeah, militant 1980s kind of rough ride, that the Labour Party would be difficult. Um, but given everything that happened from in twenty sixteen onwards, I was really. I think for both my mental health and my mother's, um, my family being very close was an important thing.
0: That's quite interesting to hear because when you first said, "Oh, well, my mum understood that I'd be in a rocky, rocky ride. This is yeah. going to be a challenging experience." My first thought was, "Oh, that's you know really far-sighted in that." someone like Jeremy Corbyn or the Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn is going to be very unpopular in Stoke-on-Trent in particular. And so it was thinking ahead that actually you'll probably need a bit more support in the constituency fighting for your seat. But actually, no, it was your Labour Party is going to become, your local Labour Party or the Labour Party in general, is going to become a real issue. And I guess that comes from experience of the 1980s and, and before. Yeah. I remember get, get, dragging my mum to our first Labour Party meeting in 20-odd years to kind of help the local CLP. Got to come to this branch, ADM. And she was like, oh, wow. It's just like the 1980s all over again. Yeah. I think I recognised some of the faces as well. Back yes. Then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Um. I've got this amazing thing that was gifted to me when I uh, got elected, which was the, um, I mean, only if you're a political geek, geek is it an amazing thing. But it's the minute book of my CLP from in the early 80s, from 1981 until 1987. Um, And you can see the impact of militants and the proxy organisations for an effort, as people are bringing forward motions to subscribe, to to affiliate to different entities and who the speakers are and how they change really quickly. Mm -hmm. But throughout our history, our very short history relatively, every 30 years we have a public nervous Breakdown. (laughs) So we look at ourselves rather than the electorate. And it was 30 years at the time, apparently, again. We're never doing this again. I am not. Yeah, if... I'm, I will be in my seventies when this happens again. I will be going to every constituency Labour Party. So let me tell you what happened last time. We're not, you know, we're not doing this again.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> I'm smiling because I'm not so sure. <laughs> you never know. Um, no, no,
1: I'm just not prepared to live it again. I, I don't think I can live this again.
0: And the reason why I'm not so sure is that I'm still, I'm still struck by the naivety of. A lot of Labour members. So when you were talking about the minutes and how revealing they are, yeah. um, I would go to a CLP down the road, which is you know very organised, very sensible. Um, there's not a huge amount of factional infighting, and their minutes are just agreed immediately. Boop, off to the next item, off we go. There's very few motions. You know they're not particularly divisive. There's agreement in the room, da 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 In my CLP, it was the opposite. There would be long fights over the minutiae of the minutes. Then there would be a series of motions that would not really go anywhere, not achieve anything, but they would just rile the room and make it quite toxic. And there is a naivety to lots of members not realising that that's a tactic. So if you are a groups such as militant or a different entryist faction, you want to get lay members fed up and going home and not bothering turning up. Why am I going to go to this meeting? It's going to be toxic. It's going to be people bickering. And so the only people who turn up are the real hardcore. And that's how you take over a constituency Labour Party and then that's how you get the new MP in. And it's all part of the process. And there seems to be so much naivety within the Labour Party about those processes and how groups how they operated, you know, the institutional knowledge from the 1980s yeah. had seemed to be lost um yeah. by by 2016 really so that's why i'm not so sure we can we can hold on to the knowledge of the last few years for another 30 years
1: well i think there's a uh, there is a responsibility on all of us that were part of the fight at every level that as and when basically to be very vigilant And also the one thing that they did that we need to, that I am adamant, the one thing that Momentum and their fellow travellers did was make politics exciting and make the Labour Party interesting for their group of people. And we didn't because we were just in a fight that was emotional and draining and difficult. And we've got to make politics more fun than it is. We've got to make the Labour Party more fun and not a relentless grind. So we're going to have to fight and we'll have to... constantly vigilant to make sure that we're winning the argument inside
0: the party and outside Mm, i guess that is that is true i think there was a lot of energy in the room in 2015 2016 as we'll probably go on to discuss not always positive energy but there was a lot of kind of excitement and if i think about that CLP that i recently went to that's kind of very sensible um not very fractious it is a an area nearby with slightly older community, broadly demographic wise, but the CLP was like there are very few young people in the room. And I think that's that's an issue longer term for the Labour Party. How does it encourage new members? How does it kind of
1: How does it encourage new members but also do political education at the same time so that people understand what they've joined? Because I don't think you do necessarily understand what you've joined. Hmm. And it's who reaches out to you first. There's also a money issue. So we are a very, very London-centric party or urban party. My constituency, Labour party, has 300 members, um, which will be smaller than one of the branches in Durham.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: And that's because disposable income is not the same. Yeah. So the idea of an activist base and a big group of members, and it's really difficult outside London because it's financially – in lots of areas, they can't afford to join our party. And I'm not suggesting for a second, Larry like, in price, we need money to campaign, but we have to find ways of balancing out the relative strengths of the party and how we invest in people.
0: Mm. I was just wondering as as well, does the the cultural attitudes of, of the Labour Party mean that it's... You want to go to an organisation and join up to an organisation where people are like you and reflect you. The Labour Party is predominantly of progressive, liberal, cosmopolitan, metropolitan types, and it has that image and that kind of vibe. It's kind of metropolitan coded in its kind of cultural attitudes. Do you ever see that Reflection of the Labour Party, of the vibes it gives off, ever get brought up in Stoke-on-Trent, either yeah. within the local Labour Party or within people on the
1: doorstep. I think the worst excesses of that were seen during the um, immediately after the Brexit referendum, um, where my voters, who had voted Labour for generations, who were actually the bedrock. There is a clue in our name: we are the Labour Party and industrial organised labour. And I come from that part of the Labour Party. That's who we were, that's why we were created. It's how we were founded. And it felt, if you weren't in, it felt like some people were sneering at us from within the party. And that was, that had done huge damage to the wider, to, um, and something we're coming through now, but that definitely contributed to the Red Wall, to the fall of the Red Wall.
0: Do you think it was a a sudden moment with the the cleaver of the kind of brexit referendum that you are one tribe or the other and labour spoke for one tribe or do you think it was a gradual cultural disconnection this is something that kind of slightly slightly obsessed with (laughs) but i think there is a point to it do you watch mrs brown's boys
1: i do not watch i mean it is all that Christmas in my house, in my mum's house. So, yes, but I don't religiously watch it. But then, I watch, Yeah, if I get to watch anything, it's unusual. I'm not exactly a typical consumer of popular culture yeah. because my life doesn't allow it. But I, and I'll be interested as to why you've asked it. But one of the things that I think is really clear historically about the Labour Party is that we were, and, I, yeah, and I've written this Several times we were a coalition of Guardian readers and Daily, and Daily Mirror readers,
2: mm.
1: and we always have been. Like it's like that was nothing new. We always have been. For a little while, that used to be balanced, and actually, what happened was Guardian readers took over, mm. and and um, and there's a class element to that, but there's also a, you know, there's lots of different aspects to that. But I represent the Daily Mirror. I'm proud to be a daily part of the Daily Mirror, Mirror tribe within our party. And I represented a constituency where it was pretty difficult to get a copy of the Guardian. This is a different context than whenever I, I actively encourage people to come and campaign in my constituency, not just because, you know, extra hands. Also, it's really different. And when I had, you know, lots of people from London came to campaign for me for different reasons. And when and we had to sort of give the Brexit briefing. No, you are not a remainder on these doors. Um, and they sort of, after one door knock, they would sort of, okay, this is really different. But yes, it's really different because their life experiences, their life chances are completely different and their worldview is different. And if you just arrive and tell them they're wrong, that isn't how we treat any electorate. We take people on a political journey. Telling people they're wrong doesn't get them to vote for you.
0: The reason why I brought up Mrs. Brown's Boys is that I think Stella Creasy might have mentioned it back in 2017 or 2016, saying that if you don't watch that show, if you're not aware of that show, you're not in tune with the British public, as it is the most popular sitcom on TV right now watched by millions, yeah. you know, Friday nights, nine o'clock on BBC. And I think when she mentioned it at some Fabian meeting here, everyone giggled, or like we would have watched that. I think just because of the era that I grew up in, watching the Labour Party's coalition tear at the edges, I'm kind of slightly obsessed with these political tribes and how Daily Mirror readers and Guardian readers now really can't quite form a a coalition because their cultural tastes are so different and your cultural tastes say a lot about your politics. For example, I remember canvassing out in Eltham in South East London on a the Middle Park Estate, which is a sprawling 1930s cottage estate, very working class area, kind of incre- increasingly over the years more diverse. But I went and canvassed there in maybe 2018 for the local elections, and my mate was like, "When you would come and canvass in Elton next time, time, can you dress less hipster? (laughs) You know, can you?" I was very kind of like um, John Lennon shades, and kind of Doc Martins. Please, this is not going to go down well. And he was kind of joking, but there was also, we don't. We want to be seen as the same tribe. And there's voters here who will take one look at me and go, Well, you read The Guardian, you vote Remain, you probably think that prisons should be rehabilitative, you are probably relaxed about mass immigration. We are just not the same tribe. And that is kind of an anxiety. I think if I was to go and canvass in. Stoke on Trent. I would be a bit anxious that I wouldn't be able to win over voters, or they would just see that I was completely different in, in in worldview. Even if we were, if we were Labour, does that make sense?
1: I can get that, but actually, I mean, my politics. I was never comfortable campaigning in London, which I suppose is the other opposite part of this. So that my politics never made sense in London. So I am not a Guardian. Reading Liberal, candidly. I went to university in Birmingham I can't, um, and I volunteered a vote with the party from that point on. And my politics made sense in our industrial heartlands in the Midlands. I, I felt comfortable and my politics worked. I had been brought up on a, um, so my family lived on a council estate in the east end of London, but um, my father's family were miners and steel workers from Scotland. So sort of, I had sort of both hits, like in a, um, both parts of that. And honestly, I think you'd be fine campaigning as local drinks people. Mm. And the Labour Party at its heart is aspirational for people. Um, but it's prioritising what our message should be. It's how the coalition had always worked. There are certain things that we would talk about that have an impact for everybody. Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. That has an impact on everyone because of the communities we live in. It has a much stronger impact on the community where 53% of the children where I am in the ward I used to live in live in relative poverty, crime is a genuine issue and social behaviour and fly-tipping has an appalling effect on people's day-to-day lives. And So tough on crime, people doing that and also trying to, you know, there are no social clubs, there's no um, youth clubs left. How you would sort of invest, I think, regardless of whether you're in London or which part of London, whether you're in Hampstead, Elton or stoke on Trent, those are universal aspirations that we would have for our communities, the NHS, universal aspirations. I think anyone in London would be offended by the idea that we need to have an industrial strategy that means that people don't have to leave communities like Stoke, um, like Wigan, you know. In order to get better paid jobs, that we should have industrial, that we should have an industrial strategy that spreads the wealth of this country so that people don't have to leave the communities from which they're born into. Mm-hmm. And I think those are universal values that are Labour Party values. What we need to make sure is that they're always in balance with a world view, with an immigration view, with a what is our place in the world, who we are, that fits across both. And... I fundamentally believe, and always have, that you talk to the electorate wherever you are about the issues they care about, not the issues you think they should care about. And then you can take people, once you've earned the right to be heard by them because you've listened to them and you're solving the issues that have a direct impact on them, you can then take them on the journey about the other issues that you may want them to start thinking about. But you've got no right to do that until you've got the right to be heard because you've built trust with them.
0: That's really interesting, and that's a lesson that my my old employer once attempted to share with me. I think I sort of <laughs> sort of got it at the time. Slowly, with life experience um and maturity, understanding it a little bit more. But I used to work for Shavon McDonough, and she'll probably really dislike me me sharing this on a podcast. But I, I'm going to do so anyway. Uh, one of the few moments where she was. Um, quite candid with me, we were on the campaign trail in, in Mitcham, which is a very diverse working class area of London, and talking about what is a good local campaign and how do you win support and win that trust of your community. And her big issue is the future of St Helia Hospital.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is so all-consuming as one of her local campaigns and is it so important for the residents who live nearby and any threats to that hospital is really profound for the people who live nearby, um, really threatening. However, there would be kind of a technocratic or a wonkish view that actually the proposals for expanding the Facilities at the hospital down the road in Epsom, and letting St Helier Hospital go would actually financially it would make sense. And X, Y, Z. Here's all the spreadsheets that explain it. She's not going to buy that because that's not what her constituents feel, and she will make that a bedrock of her campaign and win that trust to then, you know, engage in other issues. That are maybe important to her, but less important to her constituency constituents, because she's now got that trust and that space. You know, you've done the kind of bread and butter, and then wow. you do the campaigns elsewhere. And she compared that to the MP, I think it's Garrett Davis, who's at the time the MP for Croydon Central, whose big campaign was. Something that clearly incredibly important to him about preventing parents and carers from hitting children, and I think her view was there are parts of her constituency that are really not going to chime with that cause. I think her point being a campaign like that maybe that's important to you, kind of a liberal progressive cause. In a constituency like that, that isn't your central campaign. That isn't your everything. You can do that elsewhere, but only once you've kind of built the trust campaigning on the issues that really matter in your local area. Does that make sense? Does this make sense? It
1: does. I mean, so one of the your your electorate, if you're a member of parliament, your electorate don't care what's going on in your life. They don't care about what's important to you, they care about what's important to them, they care about they want to talk to their MP. When they have a problem, it doesn't matter to them if you're you've just lost a family member, or you know, you're in the middle of a divorce, or something else is going on in your personal life, that is irrelevant to them because they need you at that point to help them. And that is the same, so that is true on a casework basis as it is on a big campaign. You want to run a really big campaign in your constituency, you want to be identified with something nationally that is not. You know, a constituency basis. You're going to have to have done the bread and butter to make sure that your constituents don't feel that they've been abandoned. Mm. That that their views are still the most important thing in the world to you, because after all, they're the ones that have put you there. I a Labour road next to my name, but I represented the people of Stoke-on-Trent. So, you know, that was a really important part of all of this. I got um, I mean, we did six thousand pieces of case a year. I, I, you know all the surgeries everything that was expected of you know not expected but everything that i think a good mp does and we ran local campaigns and we you know we got the train the disability access for the train station and the um a new roof for the church fundamental things that we're involved with but that gave me permission to um work with a local businesswoman to set up a local holiday hunger scheme that has fed thousands of children now. But that then it will because I'd raised that was the first thing I raised in parliament. Now holiday hunger was incredibly important to me and it was before Marcus Rashford got all you know made put it on everyone's thing. I asked the first question in 2015, it was a really important thing for me. It was what did children who qualified for free school meals do during the school holidays? Their parents didn't suddenly have extra money to feed them. So what were we going to do and why hadn't we fixed that over the last hundred years? Yeah, it took me three years to get a government minister to take responsibility for it. I had to sort of chip away at it in Parliament. But locally, I had permission to do the work that I did on that because of the work I was, uh, because I was was also working with a local businesswoman to set up a charity. That was an incredibly important part, but it gave me permission to do the stuff I wanted to do. Mm. Whereas on the other hand, and I think this was really funny. I did low I think um, I went on the Defence Committee as soon as I got in this place. Defence and national security were really important for me. I think women from the left speaking about national security from a position of authority, really, really important symbol. And I love it, right? So that's one. But I, um, on a personal level, I fell in love with the Royal Navy. And um, I'm an honorary captain in the Royal Navy now. I, it's a huge privilege, and I still do work with the Royal Navy. I represented Stoke-on-Trent. We've got canals. We're landlocks. <laughs> and so my constituents thought it was brilliant I was doing stuff for the military. But what was I doing for the Navy? So it's like we, they have shown photos of me. Someone someone did a um, focus group in the constituency. And there was me in uniform, but I was on a ship. And I'm like, why is she on a boat? Sorry, I mean, I'm not on a submarine. But more than that, <laughs> so i like... 'Cause we're an island. Yeah, but we're Stoke on Durant. So you sort of you probably were also really careful about they were it's a very patriotic constituency, very pro our military, but most um, but their natural connection is with the army. Uh, because of, you know we were we were a recruitment area for the army. So that was sort of well, why is she doing the navy? Because like, I really like
2: them. <laughs>
1: and I'm gonna keep doing it. I mean I do stuff in the army too, but I really like playing with the navy. Um, but so, but it was questioned, which is
0: fascinating. Because and that sort of, you know, sort of ties into that. Was there any moments in Parliament? Oh, there's, okay, there's the big elephant in the room, the 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 B word. But were there other than Brexit? Were there any issues that came along, came onto your onto your desk or votes in Parliament? Where you knew that your personal views were very different to the broad consensus in Stoke-on-Trent.
1: Oh, interesting. I don't. Th- I didn't get challenged on my voting record. But in, I mean, in part, that was because we were in opposition. So I was opposing the evil government. Like that. I mean, that was for the majority of my constituents. That was more than acceptable. Um, and would be more of an acceptable now. I mean, it's not like they're, um, <laughs> they definitely are not fans of this government. No, I don't think I was ever completely at odds. I think there were moments where people were confused about the issues that I was, that I might have raised, but there were different types of MPs. When I arrived in Parliament, um, it was explained to me that Parliament is a multi-act play, but all the acts are going on at the same time. So everyone's sort of focused on the chamber, but there's also the Westminster Hall debates going on, and there'll be the meetings that you're having, and the campaigning that you're doing, and but and all of this is happening within the same square footage in this building, and um, the yeah. arguments that you're having, the party stuff versus the parliamentary stuff versus uh, your scrutinising roles, the statutory instruments that you'll be on. But everything's happening at the same time. It's just which bit you're in. And I am sure. That I know know that lots of people embrace different parts of that, and that's who they are. There are some people who are chamber members of parliament who just love being in the chamber. They love the sound of their own voice, in part. But that's why they're here. They want to have their voice and their opinion heard on every subject, and they'll spend six hours a day in the chamber. That was not me. I would I would go into the chamber to talk about things that I thought were relevant. Um when they were relevant, and where I thought it was um I could most make a contribution for my constituents, I would be in as many meetings with ministers as was humanly possible to get the things I needed done for my constituents, so it was a different yeah, you know, there were different things that people were doing, and that may have annoyed you know and i spoke in the chamber quite a lot, but I you know not every day. I spoke in the chamber every week, and so it's a different sort of approach, a different focus a different and that definitely may have upset some constituents and would have pleased others. The reality is, you're never going to please seventy-seven thousand people.
0: Oh, that that's true. And I was just thinking about how you, what you said at the beginning—that when you're elected, there is no there's no training manual. Oh <laughs> <or> no, <laughs> to be um, to be an MP. And I'm just thinking, there's so many different ways, so many th- aspects of your job that you have to do. So one, you you will have to show your good work. You know, one of the things you you have to, you know, MPs need to get better at getting their jazzy one-liner onto a TikTok (laughs) in the chamber, but also they need to go to the community meetings to show their face. They need to do so, so much casework, but also... The way that you'll kind of make policy changes usually in those one-on-one meetings and getting the ear of a minister. And that isn't really seen by the outside world. So you have all of this to juggle, but the public don't fundamentally care if you're having a really bad time. You have such responsibility that never, ever stops and there are no days off. And I'm just thinking, oh, MPs really should be paid more. I know it's you know there's so much um yeah, like, that's a that. controversial uh, points, but the job is so incredibly difficult.
1: And um, but then there are people do it in such different ways. So I didn't understand people that didn't work working 70 hours a week because I didn't know how you could do the job properly without working 70 hours a week. But other people would happily do that. you know, other people have other jobs so I don't know how I mean I just I don't even know how people who and I you know I'm sure I just found the way, right? But I don't even know how you can be a minister and be an MP because the, that is another another—that is a job on top of a job. And so unless you've got extra staffing support to do your constituency stuff, that is also a huge additional thing. Like you, you just don't sleep and people fall over. And and you talk, you touched on the beginning about your constituency. I had an amazing constituency party that was broadly hundred percent supportive. And, um, I mean, I have had a few challenges, but they had a vote of solidarity with me. I never had a threat of a vote of no confidence. Mm. But Jeremy Corbyn came to Soap on Trent, not to my constituency. And I didn't go. I think it's fair to say probably wasn't going to go anyway, but I didn't go. And the chair of my CLP went on Facebook to attack me for not going. He didn't think to check with anybody to find out where I was. I was in hospital having emergency surgery mm. and um, the, I, mean, I think the whole world landed on top of him but how dare he have attacked me when I was literally lying in the local hospital and by the way going to the local hospital with the local MP that is not a funny experience for anybody either. Um, you know there are those moments where people are sort of they think that it doesn't matter that you're ill it doesn't matter that you've had think you are meant to be where they think you're meant to be at any given point. Like I went to um I really had always wanted to do go to the trooping of the colour for uh for the Queen. And so I didn't go to the summer party um in a park and I got attacked for it. And I was like but I'm still at work. <laughs> like it's not like I'm not doing something that is and I get it was a lovely experience I I was allowed to do as a member of parliament. was like I'm still here as a member of parliament representing you and I did go to the summer party last year and I was at the Christmas party six months ago and I'll be at the end of the you know, so it's not like i have done a runner but it's just not there that one day it's like yeah it doesn't make any of
0: it. I'm starting to wonder if perhaps the only way you can cope with these demands is to be you know like one of those um cliche old school Tories who go, who go back to their constituency twice a year, cut a ribbon and swan around Westminster and shrug their shoulders. at Any, any uh, uh, comments that they should have kind of wider responsibilities than a kind of drinking in strangers bar and, and gossiping. Um, and that's maybe if you, if you put this energy in it just, the expectation of MPs grows and grows and grows. Yeah. So, in Siobhan's office, we would be so on it with casework. We would be like, email comes in, straight away, respond. And I sometimes felt that constituency started to expect an instant response from their Member of Parliament. And it seems strange to say sometimes, actually, if you are really, really on it, people start to expect something that cannot be delivered 365 days a year and it's just too much to ask for MPs and often we're asking far too much from members of parliament.
1: We also we give them very little staffing support I mean they're, 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 every MP's got an extra member of staff now than when I was a member of parliament during Covid everyone got an extra member of staff because of the volume of casework. But but like the sheer volume of work that came through my constituency office um, and especially at a time when public services were being cut as far as they've been cut. So there was nowhere else to go. There's no, you know, We've got an amazing Citizens advice bureau, but we were very lucky lots of places didn't. So, like, the sheer volume was huge. And if there weren't the support services and the council services that people had expected and had sort of been reliant upon, and yet you've got one person who, by the way, might not have... I mean, I was a former trade union officer, so... Um, had some experience and i employed people that had worked for the Citizens advice bureau so that they had a basic understanding of what was going on but but that's because i knew who to employ no one tells you what to do or how to do it right at the beginning either so you you'll get it wrong and the volume was exhausting we could never have given an immediate reply because it was just so so much work coming through And I was adamant that we weren't going to ever turn a constituent away, whereas I believe newer members of parliament who got elected in 2019, they won't do immigration casework, they won't do specific kinds of casework, because they don't want to, so they don't do it. I don't understand that.
0: I guess maybe your thinking is, as you mentioned earlier, now you're in the House of Lords, you have space to be a legislator. Yeah. Actually have that time and space to go through the fine detail and examine legislation. When MPs, even though that's their fundamentally that's a kind of key role, as to examine legislation, represent their constituents' views while doing that scrutiny, but because so much of their life is taken up with taking over the role of the citizens Advice bureau that it just sucks the kind of oxygen from a lot of mps and maybe maybe there's a realization of new mps that they have to say no to some casework, that they have to turn some constituents away that they have to send automated responses and that's the only way they can do their other work in parliament perhaps maybe it's a reform yeah,
2: um-
1: I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't have been able to do it like that. But then you're right, because the caliber of the quality of the legislation that that is coming from the Commons to the Lords. And I haven't been in the Lords for five months, right? So what do I know really? But we've got the the levelling up bill that is currently in front of us. We're on day 12, I think, of committee stage to go through the bill line by line. Um, We're not halfway through yet. Um, and there are over 500 amendments that have been tabled by members of the House of Lords because the legislation isn't good enough. Um, and what is being sent to us just does not Some of it is contradictory, it doesn't make sense, it needs to try... And you know, and government will make amendments in the House of Lords to tidy up the poor legislative language that had just been agreed in the Commons. And, and no one would have noticed. And no one noticed it, I mean, candidly, there is room for negotiation and there is room for discussion in the House of Lords, that there isn't in the House of Commons. But it shouldn't be as bad as it is by the time it gets through,
2: mm. It
0: must be frustrating for members of Parliament, I think. They, they must be in some way conscious that the scrutiny within the Commons is not what it should
1: be. I think it's really... I mean, I wasn't in the Commons at a normal period, but I'm not sure anyone ever knows what they're voting on. so. The um and I uh, I'm a whip in the House of Lords. I think you know whipping is what keeps political parties structured and together, and you can deliver things. It's really important, you know, that your party process is a really important part of British democracy. But I went through I I I was only on one bill committee when I was um, a member of Parliament because of the other work that I was doing, and so I only did one bill of scrutiny in five years. That is not what happens here. <laughs> the House of Lords does it. And this is where I'm going to do my bit for the House of Lords. I think this is an extraordinary place. I'm sitting for a relecture. lecture. I feel like I'm sitting for a relecture lecture every week because the people, the calibre of contribution in the House of Lords is is just amazing. And it is because no one cares about the one minute clip for TikTok. Yes. This, there is no you know, there's no electorate to sell it to. What they care about is the issue that's in front of them that they're talking about. It's not a grandstanding place. It is a place to try and make legislation better than what was put in front of us. And in my first week as a peer, we had the um, the Archbishop of Canterbury had his annual debate, which was on the immorality of this government's immigration policy. I heard Lord Hall talk about the future of the BBC and Robert Winston talk, um, um, we, there was the majestic engineering bill was going through the House of Lords. And he is extraordinary and his brain is the size of the room I'm sitting in. None of those people would have ever stood for election, but their contribution to our public life and our democracy, for want of a better word, referring <laughs> to refer to laws, laws, yeah, the, their contribution to our legislative program and how our world's going to work is just extraordinary and valuable and incredibly important. And I don't know how you replicate that. I mean, that genuinely, I I sat in the um, in the international women's day debate, and my chamber is twenty seven percent women, with, and in no small part because of the hereditaries. So the women who got here. And you have, you know, got here maybe you know, over the last 30 years. They are pretty extraordinary, exceptional people. And listening to their stories, it is an amazing. It was an amazing debate to listen to. And I just think, you know, there is something in uh, in our public debate in the House of Lords that isn't touched on in the House of Commons.
2: It's a very different thing. Yeah.
0: No, I, I I completely agree. But I also find it slightly slightly uncomfortable because I think you would have asked, if you'd pinned me down like ten years ago and said, What do you think of the House of Lords? I would be like, abolish it. <laughs> it's a disgrace. An unelected, yeah. you know, what are we? Um and in my time working in Parliament, I was like, Hmm, the good scrutiny yeah. of our laws takes place there. And then actually my job after that involved me kind of observing parliamentary processes actually a bit more closer. And we sort of crisscrossed paths, walked adjacent to each other when I was working for an organisation lobbying against the online safety bill, Mm -hmm. which I know is something that Index on Censorship are very closely watching and very critical of. Um, yeah. The quality of debate on that legislation, which is unyieldly, it could have huge, huge ramifications for free speech, for tech startups. It is huge. Um, the quality of debate in the House of Lords, watching, you know, reading over Hansard and going, wow, these individuals really get the detail and the impact. And it's really refreshing to see people who get it when it came to the debates over the online safety bill in the house of commons, it was MPs bringing up, you know, kind of pet issues that yeah. wanted, can you, can you, can you make this speech not allowed online? And sometimes they'll have quite a powerful story behind it. You know, something speeches that has been really damaging to a constituent. And they have a personal story about um, online abuse. And I think those personal stories play a part in the discussion over the bill and the the future of how we deal with the online world and, and speech online. But so much of it was, it felt like a ticking box exercise for an MP. Well, I've got this issue, I've got this local campaign for this type of speech to essentially be banned, and I'm just going to get up, get my TikTok. And then go back and say to my constituents, "I raised this, I raised this horrible issue, yeah. I that it should be thrown into the online safety bill, and more speech should be censored." And it was like, "This is," <laughs> I was thinking, "This is terrible." Um, but also, it comes from a pressure of maybe perhaps a lack of time, but also in a uh, an electoral accountability. So they all have to kind of represent. their constituents are asking for and usually it'll be uh, a campaign group that are particularly upset about a certain type of speech that's spreading online and so they want to represent constituents who've raised that as an issue so they have these outside pressures as well which is part of our democratic process and then i'm seeing those who are kind of separate to the democratic process really doing the good scrutiny and then i feel really conflicted
1: Um, Um, i mean the House of Lords is unjustifiable, except <laughs> it is an extraordinary thing that works. And the difference between the two, you couldn't dedicate what we're going to have to dedicate to the online safety bill in terms of time. There's going to be in day three today. There's going to be at least 15 days, I think. I mean, I have know in theory it's 10, but I don't, the number of amendments that are coming through, I don't see how that's yeah, It's going to be less than that. Of um, scrutiny, of line-by-line scrutiny of the whole House. Um, and that's the difference. So, like today, is um, some of the um, amendments on end to end encryption and protecting end to end encryption. People with no level of expertise about end to end encryption will be in the chamber today. On Tuesday, some of the clauses touched on age verification and pornography. So, you had a different group of people who were part of the conversation on Tuesday. And that's because it's a committee of the whole house. Um, so there isn't sort of your own expert level of expertise, and in here it's expertise, mm. to make an intervention on a specific element of the bill that is of concern means you can just come in on that day. Whereas in the Commons, second reading, everyone has to do their pontification of you know, demonstrating to their, their electorate that they've noticed. They're not committee stages done as a committee, very rarely done as a committee of the whole house. So there'll only be whoever has been chosen, whoever put themselves forward from each political party. But you're talking, you know, 20 people as opposed to 650. And then on third reading, some people pontificate again, right? So there isn't the same. And yet, yeah, you couldn't possibly do in the Commons what you put your mind. You could, but they wouldn't. What you do here so we don't have anywhere near as many days talking about general debate general issues um we do have every uq we do have every statement but we don't have a, the statements are time capped so we can do the rest of our work uq is a time capped so we can do everything in our work and um, and we have four questions uh, questions are 40 minutes every day but we have four questions so it's a very different environment than the commons and we're a group of people who are just as political, mostly, but don't have to be as party
0: political. Mm. So different. And I just wonder how you could take what's so good about the House of Lords and essentially make it into an elected chamber, or does what makes it so unique... For example, the members don't have to be so party political. Yeah, they don't have to come in, you know, every day, and they they come in on their areas of expertise, or they don't have to go to the local village fair ribbon cutting. They can be you know, line by line yeah. scrutinizing. How can you keep that essence yeah. when they have demands of? A normal politician that is accountable to the public and everything that comes with that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. And it's 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 for people with bigger brains than me to um to examine, absolutely. I
1: think it's really difficult. It's a constitutional, you know, oddity, but you would want people that I mean, as soon as I, you know, if I had to stand for re-election to the House of if I stand for election to the House of Laws there'd be videos, there'd be a campaign, I'm a politician to my fingertips, like, right? it would be a normal, I, and that isn't what this place needs. Mm. That is, um, we have all of the former chief of defence staff sit in this building, so listening to them talk about defence policy, well, that's not intimidating at all. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing thing that people are doing. I am obviously unsurprisingly a huge fan, but I am genuinely surprised by how much I've
2: enjoyed it and
0: how amazing some of these people are. And how nice is it to still be deeply involved in politics, still be in Parliament, but have not have the lens, not have the, the public eye be so firmly on you? Because House of Lords members are yeah. you know, less... Less out there. You don't see them on Newsnight as much. You don't see them on TikTok as much. You know what? What is it? What's it like being still be involved in politics without having the troubling side of scrutiny? That's maybe a strange. I don't
1: know if I've escaped that bit yet. I think I probably will, but I, um, my social media doesn't mean that it's calmer than it was, but it's not. Um, it's not quite the same. I think there is something. I mean, one of the issues that we have is, you know, so I live in Stoke-on-Trent. Like Stoke is still very much my home. Um, I have a Conservative council, have Conservative MPs, I'm surrounded by bloody Tories. So <laughs> for me, uh, and for our local media, um, please God that will all change with the local elections. This is being recorded the week before the locals, and um, the local like, election is next week. Um, I will have a Labour council in Stokeham Trent, which will be a joy, and it will be the only Labour council in Staffordshire. Um, and there'll be other Labour voices, but right now, locally, I'm the Labour voice. Mm. Um, and that's fine. That, that's absolutely fine. And I look forward to the general election when I've got, when there are MPs re-elected, because they will be.
0: I guess at the moment it puts some, it's a, puts some pressure on you to be the Labour voice in the area.
1: As and when required. I serve at the pleasure of the party. The party is everything. I serve at the
0: pleasure of the party. One thing that we were talking about earlier that I did want to touch on, we were talking about how in 30 years' time, we hope the Labour Party does not have another breakdown. And part of prevention is keeping institutional knowledge alive of how things can go horribly wrong and educating members about what was so toxic in those years when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. And the number one thing that was most toxic was anti-Semitism. And we don't have enough time for you to discuss all the feelings over those years, but I wanted to understand from your perspective, when did you first realise it was an issue? And why do you think the party was so slow to wake up to the issue of anti-Semitism on the left and the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and why it became so factional and difficult to have a discussion about.
1: This is a horrible, horrible period of our party's history Um, and is unforgivable, in my opinion, to the people that allowed this to be a thing. Like, there was no that this should have been a thing and it would have been easily manageable. Politically, if there was a political will, this would have been dealt with in 2016 and my life would have been very different. Um And something Simpsons of Labor Party made me cry for the first time in January 2016. And I sat in a room, actually in the House of Lords, sat in a room and listened to... A group of students who were at Oxford Labour Club talk about what was, what was happening to them on campus within the Labour Club as part of the uh, Dan Royal's investigation into what was happening. The anti was trying, but as soon as Jeremy became leader, we had a problem. Um, and I sat in that room crying because uh, it's heartbreaking. Students on campus within a Labour Party at Labour Party meetings being voted for being Jewish. At that point, I was on the Parliamentary Committee of the Labour Party, and um, so that meant that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, I he cares every week, leader of the Labour Party, turned up to meet with the executive of the Parliamentary Party. Um, I was elected on, as soon as I became an MP, and I stayed on throughout my tenure. I became vice-chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party, um, I think in my second year. Um, and so I raised it. In January 2016 with Jeremy Corbyn. Please make this go away. Deal with it now. This is going to become horrible. Um, and it didn't. And I raised it every week from there on. So all of this nonsense that it, it was a political football and it's just one for my Jeremy. And I raised it privately every week. Begging. Pleading. Demanding that action was taken. I asked him to do, and as it progressed, I gave him, I asked him to do three things. I asked him to retweet uh, some of the worst excesses of my abuse, of Luciana's abuse, of Margaret or Louise, any of us, choose one, and retweet it and say this is not in his name, mm. and this is unacceptable, because that would have been a, a thing. I asked him to do a private visit to Yad Vashem or Ashut and then come back and talk about it. Um, And I asked him to give a speech to stop the war, um, outlining the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, because he could have been, if he'd have chosen at any point, he could have been an incredible force for good, for change, Mm. for the anti-racist he would call himself, which he is not. Um, And he refused to do any of those at all. And it got worse, and worse, and worse. And in 2016 when everyone resigned because post-Brexit, post Joe's murder, post a lot of things. When everyone resigned, I was the only one not to publish my resignation letter. Uh, because I said I couldn't like the way he was dealing with academicism was beyond anything I could possibly comprehend. Now I couldn't serve him anymore. On a personal level. The, what happened at the Chakrabarti launch changed my life beyond all recognition and made me a Jewish MP. And it was grim. It was absolutely grim. It was unforgivable. And um, and and the Labour Party made it quite clear that our that the Labour Party wasn't safe for Jewish members. It just wasn't. It really, really wasn't.
0: Did you ever get a? sense of why Jeremy was unwilling to show that leadership that was needed?
1: Oh, I think that I mean it's really difficult. My mum would say you can't put your head on someone else's shoulders, right? So that in itself almost impossible to do. I think at the beginning this was beyond him. How could he possibly be a racist? I mean he he was friends with a lot of racists in my opinion, but how could he ever be considered to be a baddie? And then, and then he thought there was a conspiracy out again. I I truly believe. I think there is there was a documentary that was filmed about him where um I think he was talking about Jonathan Friedland. Um and he said, Well, he does write horrible stuff about me.
2: Mm.
1: And he said, uh, really? Um and he was challenged about the fact that Laura Kunzberg was getting a lot of abuse for being Jewish, she wasn't Jewish, but she was getting a huge amount of abuse, needed security at party conference, needed and um I was like, is, she's not, she doesn't like us. I was like, is, when is that and the dividing factor on whether we stand for someone against racism or not? And he never, Um, he, no one from his office contacted me after the Chakrabashi report, which no one from his office reached out at any point, um, unless there was something that they thought I was going to do that was going to be difficult for them. Mm. So um, when uh, I was escorted by lots of people um, the party had wanted me to walk past the demo by myself uh, and actually said to me, But you have Jewish security, right? <laughs> uh, that's not the way this is going to work. Um, and they, only when they got wind of the fact that a group of polit- other politicians were not going to let me do it by myself and that they were going to escort me did they then ring me that morning to ask if I wanted Jeremy's car to drive me, but I'm not going in Jeremy's order and stuff. Um, <laughs> But it's only mean, when I thought that it would
0: be a problem for them. It makes me so angry because I think for a long time you could perhaps over-intellectualise what was happening. I've seen with how Keir Starmer has responded. In absolute zero tolerance, you will be thrown out of the party. This is a disgrace and this is shameful and actually how much leadership matters and could help clean up the party. Yes, there will be intellectual, structural reasons as why there is a propensity on the left, certain sections of the left for anti-Semitism and why it can take root and why it's quite difficult in the wider left to combat. But in the Labour Party, really powerful leadership could have been transformative.
1: As it has been. I mean, I think, you know, Keir Starmer is an amazing man and has he's done that thing that, that is so rare for politicians. He under-promised and over-delivered. Like, he's done an extraordinary thing with this. Like, he did say he'd rip it out by its roots, but I think we all thought that that would be policy-driven. His he's adamant cultural change has to happen too. And he has delivered beyond anyone's expectations for turning the party on its head. And getting us back to being a potential party of government, which we were nowhere near. You can't, you know, we claim to be His Majesty's opposition. I don't think that. I don't think that when you're being investigated for racism by the statutory body that you yourself set up, uh, you're in that place. But there were so many moments that he could have made an intervention, he could have made this go away. And the bit that I find so incredibly difficult, I don't understand why he didn't fix it for political reasons. Never mind if he didn't care about it or not. Politically, it started to kill us. And it would have been not easy to fix. It hasn't been easy for Kia to fix. But at that point, it would have been more straightforward. Whereas his actions empowered racists. His actions or his lack of action sent a green light to people, and even more than that, there were parts of the country where it seemed to be that if you wanted to be selected for local council, that you were going to have to be a racist. Like it was not just that there were wider implications here. He, um, it was like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know, we don't really like those people. All right. So mm-hmm. the Jewish Labour Movement affiliates Labour Party for over hundred years. We were part of our founding party, and this was my party, and I'm not getting thrown out of it, The racists will get thrown out
0: of it. I think one of the things that made it so hard to combat was just the the constant denial yeah
2: he,
0: he was so he was so important to that denial even even till the very end it was it was exaggerated for. Even now. The, the suggestion that it's been exaggerated for political ends was still a key part of his narrative.
1: He... I mean, on I couldn't get the, the, the worst example, best or worst example. There are so many horrible examples. But there was a... Um, there was a member in Liverpool who downloaded a picture, a cartoon, of a octopus alien thing crawling over uh, Congress with a star David on his back. And it was from a far-right uh, website, American far-right website. The party member had contacted the Nazi website to ask for permission <laughs> for not to breach copyright by downloading it and printing it, distributed it at Louise Ellman's constituency Labour Party meeting. As an explainer of how Jews controlled the world, that member was not suspended or expelled. It's a Jewish member of parliament. So Louise brought it to parliament. The National Party said that it wasn't a breach. We distributed it at on every desk at the parliamentary Labour Party meeting. Um, and it ended up, and it had a row. So, are you kidding? Yeah, this was the only way to get racist expelled from my Labour Party. We had to bring evidence of what they were doing to London to prove that people were racist. Mm. It then ended up thought Showing it to the P.L.P. would have been enough to get that member expelled. <laughs> oh no, he had to go to shadow cabinet for them to have a row, for that member to be suspended and then investigated. They literally downloaded neo-Nazi material. Mm. There
2: wasn't
1: that. That is not. In the grey area here, a like clear-cut case of racism, but no, not for the Labour Party.
0: There feels to me actually that in certain circles, the the denial hasn't gone away. It's just changed. It's changed its framing. Yeah. So there is now a denial that is framed in. Labour Labor has a hierarchy of racism in that, and semitism as the top and the most important. And this is another, to me, I feel another form of denial of the extent of the issue. I read through the Ford report, and the examples of racism towards Diane Abbott, for example, amongst Labour Party staff were things about disparaging her intelligence and saying how much they despise her. It's unclear whether that that's kind of really visceral dislike by those Labour members or staff is racially motivated or not. It could be, it could not. But the anti-Semitism that I saw in the Labour Party, the racism I saw against Jews was so extreme. I had a story which I have Blogged about and spoken about publicly, in which a staff member uh, of an MP spouted the blood libel to me. That level of overt racism and the abuse that you were receiving from Labour members being Mm -hmm. so overt as well. I still just don't, I still think there's a corner, a part of the Labour Party that doesn't realise just how extreme and how overt it was, and how if it was racism, towards any other group there was no way people would not be expelled there was no way that you would have to take evidence to the parliamentary party and i think still that's not sometimes fully grasped how difficult how it's like pulling teeth to get racists expelled from the Labour Party if they were anti-Semites someone wrote
1: an article Journalists wrote an article say that they were um that i and a couple of other people didn't have human blood we were Jewish. Um, they were expelled from their trade union. They were not expelled from the Labour Fund. So, I am, but I am quite clear that if they had said that about anyone else based on a protected characteristic, they would not be in the Labour Party and that they would have been removed immediately.
2: And
0: I think at the most fundamental level, if Jeremy Corbyn had associated, had a long history of associating with other racists who yeah. are racist towards other communities, at his career would be in tatters. There's absolutely no way he would have been elected leader, leader of Labour Party. And that's, right. that's the
1: Whereas fun. it's my fault, apparently, that he's not Prime Minister. Mm. You know, it's my fault that he that he associated himself with Labour racists. It's my fault mm. that anti-Semitism and the Labour Party became an issue. For the first time in our movement's history, it's not the fault of the racist
0: it's, it's a fault of the conspiracy
1: fault of the conspiracy and the people that dare to say that they
2: have a that they've
0: been affected I know your current role is with the index on censorship yeah that wasn't a very smooth segue, but I will try and <laughs> that always well when I first found out, I found it particularly intriguing as an MP as someone in the public eye who received the worst abuse the most incessant abuse and has seen the very worst of what the kind of online world that we now live in can deliver my assumption would be someone who's had your experience would be would feel compelled to be quite censorious, you know.
2: So you, the internet. You've, seen, you've <laughs> seen
0: the damage that it does, yeah. and that impact would be something must be done. And you hear that with the online safety bill the message from MPs something must be done to curb trolling and abuse. So, to have that experience and then campaign for an organization that's in favor of freedom of expression, even if the speech is a deeply problematic. And upsetting and hurtful, but actually that needs to be protected. How how does this kind of come about?
1: So I and it is completely um, confounding to a lot of people. I think, including lots of my friends, who think I'm nuts. <laughs> um, but there's a couple of parts of the organisation bill that you so you yeah, know with both hats on that I can um, where I am quite clear. So it's what are you actually going to? Who gets to decide what is removed? And just because I might have the same value set as someone writing one algorithm, I definitely won't have the same value set as someone who writes a different algorithm. And so who gets removed? Who gets to determine what is actually going to be removed in terms of content? In terms of the hateful content that I've had, I am really nervous. And this is when it's offline versus online world. If we're going to delete before anyone has seen it, someone threatening to kill me because that's illegal how will i know someone's threatened to kill me how will i know that i need to take extra precautions in my on in my offline world to keep me safe and that's the bit that really worries me you know from a which would make you that genuinely worries me about parts of the bill i won't know when i'm not safe I also think we've got to be really careful about unintended consequences. Of course, there have been moments where I have wanted the internet turned off. I mean, maybe not internet shopping, but still.
0: <laughs> that's therapeutic.
1: That's therapeutic. That is required. That's therapy, definitely yeah. therapy. But still, there are other points. Those that love me have changed my Twitter password, so I can't see what's being said about me. When I remove all social media apps from my phone, because no one can... And yeah, and, and truly... At the height of the horror, I didn't want to see it. I genuinely didn't want to see it, but I did for my own mental health need to know that someone was seeing you. Like, I needed to know that that people were being prosecuted, not even being prosecuted. We went, you know, everyone deals with this differently. I desperately needed it to stop. But if someone is threatened to kill me, I started um, the 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 conversations I'd have with the police is go and tell them to leave me alone. I don't need. To, I don't want to spend my life in court. I don't want to go through this. I want it all to stop. Tell them to stop it. Not that the police were my own, you know, personal security fools but just when there were grounds for prosecution, we always started with just make them stop and tell them I won't press charges if they just stop. Um, and we did have to prosecute a few, but broadly just go away and leave me alone. I just wanted left them alone. But I needed to know that I needed to know someone was looking so that I knew when I was or was not safe. And then there's the other part of this. I'm a politician. There is a level of banter and criticism and critique, but you've got to take on the chin. And if you're not prepared to do that, you're really in the wrong field, right? But there's also, you've got to have a feeling for what people are actually saying, because otherwise you're missing something. And and you have to remember that social media is not the real world either. So, you know, at the height of Syria, I voted for um, additional intervention into Syria. I went door knocking at the weekend. I, you know, I chose three uh, wards where I thought I would I just I wasn't late quite door knocking, it was what do you think I should do. Because I wanted to make sure that there's the real, you know, the real world, not real world conversations I was having. Um, but at the same time, argument is key for development. Debate is key for finding the next answer to the next problem, to the next solution. And I need that online. I think that universities are temples of education and learning and challenge of debate. Therefore, freedom of expression should be protected in those places so that people can put up arguments and they can be destroyed if they're racist or if they're hate-filled. But I think if you, as soon as you push something to the fringes, and I really worry about the online safety bill, if so you push some of these conversations to the fringes, a, they won't know what that what that people are actually talking about, and it will be on the dark web because I may not know how to go on the dark web, but I'm pretty sure a very tech, tech savvy, angry person will find out how to do it in about three seconds. And we shouldn't, that isn't how we should be living our lives. I also have had ridiculous conversations with the Home Office about the Online Safety Bill, because I've raised the fact, I won't know, I will be less safe by the Online Safety Bill's current provisions than I am right now, which is not the plan of the bill. Like, that is just absurd. And the Home Office office said, well, our goal is, you know, if, if it's not there, then no one can share it, so it won't be amplified. I was like, yes, but someone's still threatened to kill me. (laughs) It's great that it won't be shared a hundred times But someone has just written kill me, And I
0: need to know There is another point that you've you've made About the bill and about censorship More broadly Which is that it doesn't stop people being racist and hateful And racist and hateful individuals will find a way They will find a way to get their message out no matter what, and you can you kind of you can play whack a mole, and you can censor and censor and censor more and more and more and more. But is that really the society that we want to to live in? And it was really interesting learning a little bit about how hateful individuals go about their business um, while researching that bill. The use of emojis, for example, yeah. like you know, like a a glass of milk being a white supremacist like, coded symbol? And are you going to ban that? Are you going to ban the monkey emoji that's sent to um, England footballers? Because if you do ban those emojis, the racists will find another way. Language will keep evolving. New terms, you ban certain terms, new terms will be formed. We'll constantly find new ways to express their ma- message and it doesn't tackle the root causes of why people hold these views.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things one of my frustrations with the bill is it doesn't mention education once. Um, what we've not had is a conversation about what type of speech we want online. And we've never we've not had a national conversation about how, given that most of us spend an inordinate amount of time online now, regardless of whether it's you know, from banking to social media to shopping, to whatever it may be, most parents use WhatsApp to track their children walking home. You know, that we use this to- we use these tools available online every day. And I think that that's part of the um, the lack of appreciation. And there's some of this, and it is the unintended consequence that, of course, we all want to have a nicer life, right? No one wants to go on social media and it to be completely miserable. Why would you keep doing that to yourself? In fact, I don't know why I kept doing it to myself. But it's the unintended consequences of the bill. So by accident, we could bring in age verification, which in theory sounds completely legit. And probably the porn site, the very clear car site, Absolutely, there should be age verification. But we don't bring in age verification for YouTube. Are we don't bring in age verification for Facebook or for accessing MumsNet, right, for anywhere where there's speech, because this legislation, there's over 15,000 companies that are going to be affected by this legislation. And one of my issues is that so age verification means no no more online anonymity. For most people, because to, and the cheapest and easiest way to prove that you're over 18 is to provide a credit card, you know, to prove that you are over 18, so you've got access to them. Which means you are a victim of domestic violence and you are looking for a way out. You'll have an anonymous online account to try and find help. You are a 14 year old that lives in a small C conservative area and you are exploring your sexuality and it is, and, you, and you're and you gay. You're going to have an anonymous account as you're finding out who you are, mm. because of the potential backlash that could come for you. I just think we've got to be really, really careful. And today in Parliament, we're going to be debating end-to-end encryption. Now, I can't. I'm on the front bench. I can't participate in the debate. It's driving me crazy. But um, rightly, but still driving me crazy. End-to-end encryption. You can't be a little bit encrypted. Something is either encrypted or it's not encrypted. It's like being a little bit pregnant. These are not. These are binary choices. And um, the government wants to undermine end-to-end encryption. They want um, to—they want client-side scanning to see whether um, content is being, uh, that illegal content is being distributed or not. Impossible to do. My issue with it is, you know, I am not—I don't want to protect pedophiles or terrorists. Of course, I don't. I want every one of them found and prosecuted. There are other ways of doing it because how they use these tools, how they, the number of messages they send, the number of pictures they send, you can flag different ways of using the information available. I talk to journalists in Hong Kong. I talk to journalists in Russia, in Ukraine, in Belarus, in Afghanistan, in Sudan right now. We use end to end encryption.
2: Mm
1: I won't be able to use end-to-end encryption because anyone... So say I want to speak to a journalist in Hong Kong, all we've got to do is hack my phone because it won't be encrypted and they'll be able to see every message.
0: Once you you open a back door, anyone can get in. And I guess as well, you will have autocrats and dictators looking around the world, seeing what our parliament is doing. If we do throw enter into encryption in then, and bin and uh, well so great britain has done it that great liberal democracy has done it they've done it to protect their national security and protect their people we are going to do it what we see as threatening to our national security and our people yeah. it's like different but we're going to do the same mechanism it's like it's so short-sighted i think from lots of uh, our politicians backing it
1: my partner's daughter is 12 she walked home from school She has to put on um, the locate function on WhatsApp so that we can see her walk home from school. She's in year seven. This is a new thing, right? And that is fine for her dad, for me, for her mum to know where she is. I don't want anyone beyond the three of us knowing. I don't want anyone else to be able to hack my phone or her phone. And suddenly, because if then the locator function's on, everyone will know exactly where she is. And I don't want everyone to know exactly where she is. So I don't want bad people to know where the 12-year-old girl is. I want us to know so we know she's got through the door in one piece. Or that she stopped at the sweet shop on the way home. You know, I want to be able to know that. <laughs> Why is she 10 minutes late? Where is she? Ah, oh, okay, she's gone to the sweet shop. do You know, that is fine, but I want to be able to know that.
0: So for Curveball question at you. Do you see any conflict in taking a very open attitude to free speech and open inquiry and open debate and taking a very hardline stance on harmful speech or hateful speech within the Labour Party? So within, no. a, within a private organisation's own role and then the public square, do you, do you say, have you had anyone throw that at you? How, well, you say you're in favour of free speech, but then you're in favour of what Keir Starmer is doing in the Labour Party, throwing out members left, right and centre. How do you deal with that accusation?
1: The hard left, I don't think of them as the left, but the the extremists who have been involved in the Labour Party set up a free speech campaign as soon as it was public that like, I've got this job. Mm.
2: Um,
1: and So, yeah, of course it's an accusation. And The difference is the Labour Party is a private member's club. We get to just choose. I am not saying that you don't get to be racist although I think you're a foreign and therefore you probably, you know I am saying you don't get to be in the same club as me. Yeah. And that's a different thing. You you know, I'm not stopping you from earning a living, I'm not stopping you from the rest of your life. What I am saying is you don't get to have the badge that is that says your that your values are the same as our values, because they're not. I also think that that's one of the things that we're not really talking about, and that's long Corbyn. Mm. What we've done is empower many people to have these views. And that uh, anti Semitism in my lifetime is now a thing, and it had not been. It had, yeah, you it know, low level. Yeah. been on the national front pages again this week. Like, anti Semitism is a, um, in mainstream society, it was mainstreamed racism. The late parties, if Jeremy Corbyn successfully did one thing in his tenure is he mainstreamed racism, there is now an onus on us. As a party, to challenge the racism that we facilitated that now exists outside of our time, yeah. and that's a longer-term campaign.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree.
0: I'm hesitating because I felt, even though I tried to fight it in the Labour Party, I felt like I was I was part of it, and sometimes you you worry of did you do enough or did you help, you know, was it right to stay? Should I have left? But I think those, no. those debates are for, for, for another day, perhaps. And I think now we need to just focus, focus on the future, focus on repairing the damage in the late party, repairing the damage in the late party. You said it's probably the easier stuff. It's outside mm-hmm. the late party in society. And I think taking some of the points that we've said here I think the right approach is through education through taking people on a journey and I would hope you agree it's probably not through censorship <laughs> That's
2: it's certainly
1: not through censorship I, I, education education yeah,
0: like. it's education it's understanding it's taking people on a journey and it's through open debate and challenging racists and challenging their ideas and winning over those who are standing around in the crowd listening. That's me trying to sum up all the different things we've we've, we've talked about in this very lengthy uh, discussion. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me, Ruth, and I hope you have a really successful campaign in the upcoming uh, elections in May. By the time this will comes out, it'll be a distant memory because I'm so slow at editing. (laughs) (laughs) We had local elections earlier this year. Oh, really? Well, I hope they go really well for you, and and I hope um, things in the... Lords just get kind of more interesting and more interesting for you. Thank you
1: so much,
0: Leo. Yeah, take care, Ruth. Bye bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast and get additional content like bonus episodes and show notes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com/steppingoutofline. That's www.patreon.com/steppingoutofline. If you want to find out more about Ruth and what she's getting up to, you can check her out at Ruth Anderson. That's at Ruth Anderson. And if you'd like to find out more about what Leo's up to, make sure to check out his Twitter at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. Thanks once again for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you listen
2: to the next one.